Bert Cohen here. We are keeping democracy alive. Check for pulse. Stand clear. Push to shock. So yes, there's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy. That people don't feel that they can do very much. You know what this is? This is a very Hamiltonian system. Alexander Hamilton being the guy here in a very un-Jeffersonian. In the case of the Republicans, it's dramatically the opposite. Uh, But even in the case of the Democrats. An absolute typhoon of terror against African Americans themselves. America's fascists are those people who think that Wall Street comes first and the American people come second. We're only seen as a financial sector that's uh, gotten out of hand. The shooting, the violence, that is not the drug problem. That is, in fact, the drug policy problem. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. Good old Lyndon Johnson there. Hey, what's your reaction, dear listener, when you hear the phrase, new taxes? Probably not positive. Liberal Democrats like Lyndon Johnson and so many others have long had kind of an Achilles heel for their perception as being for more and higher taxes. Well, today we're going to talk about a new tax proposal that would affect everyone, which is being pushed by Republicans. Yes, you got that right. Republicans, old school Republicans, a group of Republican elder statesmen is calling for a tax on carbon emissions to fight climate change. The group led by former Secretary of State James A. Baker III with former Secretary of State George Shultz and Henry Paulson Jr., a former Secretary of the Treasury, say that taxing carbon pollution produced by burning fossil fuels is, quote, a conservative climate solution, that key word conservative, based on free market principles. Baker has uh, said that he does not expect this plan to be welcomed by the current administration, which, as our guest today writes, financially and ideologically, the American right is wedded to carbon fuels. Trumpism runs on and reeks of them. Predictably, not a single Republican in Congress and no one in the White House has uttered a single positive word about the new Republican carbon tax plan. At the same time, progressive environmentalists helped defeat a similar proposal on the Washington state ballot in November. Wait, what? Progressive Greens helped defeat carbon tax? (sighs) Republicans for carbon tax? Environmentalists opposed? Confused? Of course. (laughs) Here to explain what this means and why purists oppose it, and yet why it is a good, realistic idea that can greatly reduce carbon emissions and slow down climate change, is economist and policy analyst Charles Komenoff, who uh, is co-founder of the Carbon Tax Center. Thanks for being with us on Keeping Democracy Alive, Charles. Oh, thanks for having me. Charles Komenoff's works include books such as Power Plant Cost Escalation, Killed by Automobile, The Bicycle Blueprint, also computer models, scholarly articles, and journalism. On the website for the Carbon Tax Center, uh, there's this great quote from Bill McKibben. And, you, I mean, you talk about environmental credentials. You just, it just doesn't get better than Bill McKibben. He says, other assaults on civilization and reason eventually uh, wore themselves out. Fascism, communism, imperialism, 
But there's no way to wait out climate change because this test has a timer on it. End of quote. Your article states, uh, starts out a little gloomy. You say the proposal for a national carbon tax released on February 8th by high-level Republicans, including Uber GOP conciliaire uh, James Baker, isn't going anywhere. All right, why do you say that? And if it's true, why is what looks to be a very significant and meaningful effort being made if it's not likely to go anywhere? Yeah, um, I did write that. Um, and what I meant to say, but in a sentence that got edited out oh, um, no. <laughs> in the last minute, is that um, uh, anytime soon. But I think that this proposal that was um, released and is being backed by the Republican elders that you mentioned, um, I think that it could have legs. Um, but what's going to have to happen is that uh, people on the left, so-called progressives, are going to have to get over themselves, as I wrote in The Nation magazine last week, um, and that some semblance of leadership and statesmanship uh, is going to have to emerge among conservatives or Republicans, and it can't just be elders like James Baker and George Schultz. It's going to have to be Republican members of Congress um, who may be uh, haltingly at first, but then in a cascade, uh -huh. at least in, uh, in our dreams, um, will uh, come to their senses and realize that uh, climate change is an existential threat, um, and as Bill McKibben pointed out in that quote that you just read, it can't be postponed. It's right. got to be dealt with now. And the best way to deal with it is with a carbon tax and um, to adhere to Republican and conservative principles. It can be and should be revenue neutral. And we probably want to talk about what oh, we yeah. mean by that. Oh, absolutely. If you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. We're talking about a new Republican not Trump, that's for sure, planned to uh, tax uh, carbon. And, uh, well, well, let's back up a little bit. You write that carbon taxes are the only policy tool that by slashing demand in a rapid, predictable way divests our economy from fossil fuels and enables governments, businesses, and consumers to make investments in the transition to clean energy, end of quote. What is a carbon tax? How does it work? What kind of realistic results should we expect it to deliver? Well, it, um, you know, calling it a carbon tax, which I do, and uh, you're right, Bert, I do run the Carbon Tax Center, but we should really be calling it a carbon emissions tax. Um, you know, there's nothing wrong with carbon, um, and there used to be nothing wrong about uh, carbon dioxide or CO2, which is uh, necessarily emitted simply by the act of combusting carbon fuels, whether you're burning natural gas in a furnace or uh, coal in a utility plant to make electricity or um, petroleum products like gasoline or diesel fuel to drive a car or truck, you're going to get carbon dioxide. Mm -hmm. And again, there used to be nothing wrong with that. Uh, carbon dioxide won't kill you if you breathe it in. And in fact, plants, you know, trees, uh, the biosphere depends on it to a certain extent or at a certain level. But carbon dioxide uh, wafts up to the upper atmosphere where it uh, prevents... Uh, a certain amount of heat that is radiated from the earth after we get that heat 
from the sun, um, and that's the well-known greenhouse effect, which was scientifically uh, discovered and talked about as long ago as 150 years ago, Mm -hmm. but it's only in the past three or four decades that that buildup of heat in the oceans um, and in the atmosphere on and above the Earth's surface has begun to destabilize and wreck the climate on which everything depends, forests, agriculture, uh, sea levels that will not um, flood and inundate coasts, and our weather systems, which are uh, buckling under so-called extreme weather, where rainfall, yes. snowfall, wind, hurricanes, tornadoes, etc., um, they may not be more common, but they are more extreme, no um, and they are doing real damage to infrastructure and natural systems that drive agriculture um, and human habitation. So um, we have a market failure on mm. our hands, whereby the costs of electricity and gasoline and natural gas that we use for home heating don't in any way reflect or include the climate damage. And um, trying to reduce use of fossil fuels and reduce carbon emissions without correcting that market failure, it's really, um, you know, like bicycling against a strong headwind. You can do it, but you're not going to do it efficiently, you're not going to do it equitably, and you're not going to do it fast enough. And what a carbon emissions tax or a carbon tax does is it adds into the prices of fossil fuels some uh, reflection um, or some part of the climate damage that's caused by burning those fuels. And by doing that, we can have a uh, level playing field Mm. where energy efficiency and renewables like wind and solar uh, can compete effectively and can diffuse throughout the economy fast enough to be able to drive down carbon emissions and over time stabilize the climate. And obviously that needs to be done globally, not just in the United States. It's being done by some other countries, but not by us. Um, But if the United States were to uh, adopt a carbon tax, and not a token one, Mm -hmm. the robust, steadily rising one, uh, that would be duplicated all over the world if we were to take the lead. And so that's why uh, those... Republican elders, um, smart guys, came together in Washington, D.C. and announced this proposal, and they did uh, call for a revenue-neutral carbon tax, and we, again, um, definitely want to talk about what that means, because we're not talking about adding to the tax burden that Americans face. We're uh, talking about uh, taxing carbon emissions in a way that recycles the money back to American families so Mm. that we can stay uh, whole or solvent in the face of rising fossil fuel prices. Wow, there's a lot there for sure, and I, you know it, yep. it's scary. I'm sure, and you know, currently gasoline prices are very, very cheap. And I was wondering, you probably know this, and, and the carbon tax center has been in business for ten years, so you've been asked everything. I'm sure. Uh, it, it, right now, say it's about you know approximately two dollars fifty cents for a gallon of gasoline, and I'm thinking back in the mid to late '60s when it was like thirty-five, forty cents. I wonder if, you know, translating dollars, which is cheaper? Was it cheaper then or is it cheaper now? I, you know, it's got to be probably pretty close to the same. Yeah, yeah, it, probably about, you know, about the same. I think the point I want to make about gasoline prices is that they're really volatile. 
they go up, they go down, True. they seem to vary at random, which you know, to some extent they do. Um, but the problem is that um, there's been no certainty in, over decades as to whether gasoline prices were going to be higher True. or lower mm-hmm. um, you know, next month, next year, or 10 years. They can turn on a dime. So, uh, Sorry? Yeah, they can turn on a dime. You just never know. Yeah. And so you know, it's kind of like you know making a you know a bet at, uh, mm. you know, at a uh, casino. You have no idea. Mm. Um, and um, so you know the the fact that gasoline prices maybe you know at various times may have gone up a lot and usage didn't go down that uh-huh. quickly. Well, it's mostly because people just expected based on this on history. Um, well, they went up last year. Uh, they went up last month. They're going to go down again. Why should I? Um, invest in a fuel-efficient car? Right. Why, if I'm a business owner, should I build my factory or my warehouse close to uh, urban centers or close to transportation? Um, if I can get cheaper land you know, way out in the boondocks, right. I'll do that. And who cares about what the price of gasoline is going to yeah. be? Well, what a, a carbon tax counters that by making it uh, certain and predictable that the prices of gasoline and electricity derived from burning coal or natural gas, which are fossil fuels, uh, that they're going to go up and that we've got to bail out from that and avail ourselves of alternatives, which do exist. They may cost a little bit more up front, but if we know that that carbon tax is going to be raising the prices of those fossil fuels, then from a business proposition, it makes sense to be investing in alternatives, in any kind of alternative that uses less fossil fuels. So we're talking about price signals that will uh, drive investment and innovation and changes in behavior and changes in the culture that will get us off this fossil fuel treadmill that is wrecking the climate. Yeah, it's interesting. Some of the criticisms of uh, sustainable energy uh, proposals that uh, President Obama had was that he was choosing winners. Well, it seems to me, as you were describing it, Charles Kamenoff, that (laughs) we're choosing winners now, that basically our taxes, you know, people are buying more, you know, heavy using uh, uh, big trucks and SUVs because the price currently is cheap and they're not thinking about, uh, you know, how far they have to go to do their business because the price of gas is cheap. But it's unrealistic. And as you mentioned, you know, it's a market failure. They're not including things that should be included in the market because our current system is actually uh, kind of subsidizing the polluters. Do I have that right? Yes, yeah, so, exactly. So our current system is not really market-friendly. It, <laughs> it's, it's broken market-friendly. And uh, so, again, I'm heartened uh, when, you know, guys of this stature in yes. our society and in what used to be the Republican Party, like George <laughs> Schultz and James Baker, right. uh, come together as they did uh, to release uh, their carbon tax proposal. The trick is going to be getting, you know, one and two and ultimately many Republicans uh, currently holding office to do, um, to act with the vision and courage of Baker and Schultz. Boy, that's asking a lot. Vision and courage? You know, I mean, basically, as a former recovering politician myself, having had the honor of serving as state senator for 14 years, uh, you know, it's about 
most politicians, it's about CYA, you know, making sure you can get elected next time and, and waiting to see what the public wants to do. And I can imagine, you know, the initial reaction of a lot of people would be that oh, this is going to tax uh, middle and lower income people unfairly. But in what ways might this proposed tax actually be a boon to lower and middle income people? Well, uh, th- thanks, Bert, because um, n- now we get to talk about um, the revenue neutral aspect um, a- of of the carbon tax proposal, and that's a fancy term for saying um, that every penny of carbon tax revenue that the government takes in would be not retained by the government to be spent on, you know, mass transit or the military or uh, you know, giveaways to corporations or whatever, or all the things that government seems to spend money on, but rather that the revenue would be returned uh, to American families. And the way that Schultz and Baker proposed it last week um, is through this so-called dividend, where the revenue pie, if you will, from the carbon tax Mm -hmm. gets uh, sliced up into uh, about 130 million equal pieces. And that's the number of households in America. And each household gets an equal slice. Now, um, you know, there could be variations on that so that big families will get somewhat more than small families. But the idea is that um, everyone gets an equal share of the pie. And when you do it that way, um, the uh, families at the middle and toward the bottom actually come out ahead because uh, poor families and middle-income families spend less money on fuels and energy, which means that their carbon tax take or bite is going to be less than households at the top and at the tippy top, which you know might have five houses and a, a yeah. private plane yeah. and um, you know burn energy uh, like there's no tomorrow. So this is what's what's really innovative and different about this Republican elders' carbon tax proposal is that it, it actually redistributes income and wealth down from the top toward the middle and to the bottom. And when, you, uh, when you've got uh, something like that that has a Republican stamp on it, wow, that is really man bites dog. And that's, um, <laughs> even though they, they didn't say it this way, and I think that they're politically smart to yeah. uh, have not branded it that way, these Republicans were holding out an olive branch to Democrats saying, we think a carbon tax is so important that we're willing to do it in a way that is going to redistribute the gains and the wealth of our economy away from the rich and toward the middle and toward the poor. And if Democrats and progressives don't uh, listen to that and see that that's a real reaching across the aisle, uh, then there's something wrong with the left in this country. Well, I think one could say that there probably is something wrong with the left in this country. And, and, it, it, it there was a a ballot measure. I want to go straight to this in yep. liberal, environmentally aware Washington State. Well, it went down to defeat last November, even as Hillary Clinton carried the state. So there was this uh, carbon tax proposal, you know, real green stuff. Uh, but let's talk about what happened there. I mean, for a long, long time, progressive greens. And I think that's a fair phrase. Progressive Greens have pushed for a carbon tax as a way to reduce carbon emissions. But you write that in Washington, progressive Greens recoiled 
huh? Why? What, what did the environmentalist community have against the carbon tax that was proposed in the state of Washington? Yeah, boy, um, Bert, thanks for raising that. As painful as it is for me, I mean, it, it's sort of like being a Cleveland Indians fan and being up <laughs> three to one in the World Series, uh, you know, last October and snatching uh, defeat from, us, yeah. from the jaws of victory. Right. Um, you know, basically, uh, with a little bit of oversimplifying, the the left in the state of Washington rejected the revenue-neutral carbon tax measure that was on the ballot that would have established a Washington state-only comprehensive um, carbon tax, and that would have been the first real beachhead for carbon taxing in the U.S. of A. They rejected it because they insisted that some uh, and a lot of the revenue that the carbon tax would have raised had to be spent on what they call the just transition. That means uh, that the uh, the left would have um, gotten to choose uh, how a lot of the revenue would have been spent, and they wanted it spent on mass transit and weatherizing homes and putting up solar panels and financing wind turbines, you know, things that are near and dear to my heart. Sure. Uh, but, but that the carbon tax alone would have helped bring about, because once you internalize the climate damage costs from burning carbon fuels into their prices and create that level playing field, things like solar and wind and weatherization and energy efficiency and even mass transit become much more viable um, in the market uh, mm-hmm. decisions that really allocate resources, whether they like it or not, um, in our economy. And um, maybe the ballot measure should have allowed for some of that, but if it had, it probably would have been less attractive, not just to conservatives who may not have ended up voting for it at all, but to people in the middle who have been acculturated in our society uh, to uh, distrust government. Um, And uh, so the left in Washington state not getting the perfect carbon tax Uh that they envisioned decided um, that they would really rather cut off their nose to spite their face. They made uh, the best the enemy of the good, um, and they, they didn't just stand off to the side and abstain. They actively campaigned against the carbon tax branding it as a carbon tax that would have uh, been uh, balanced on the backs of the poor, ignoring the fact that the revenues from that Washington state carbon tax would have gone almost entirely to reduce the state sales tax, which is a regressive tax, so that the carbon tax that they opposed would have been eminently progressive. It would have helped the uh, economically disadvantaged. It was an amazingly stupid um, and selfish and short-sighted decision. Um, maybe the carbon tax would have lost anyway, but it wouldn't have lost by a three-to-two margin. It would have been at least close, and we might have had at least a moral victory. Um, so the left really has a lot to atone for um, in um, in opposing the uh, Washington state carbon tax last fall, and that's really what my piece in The Nation last week was about. Boy, how do you really feel? <laughs> yeah, it, it, it does amaze me, having worked in politics and in government for uh, quite some time, to see how purists can just mess things up. And, you know, we could do a whole show on that. I mean, the fact that a lot of the people who supported Bernie Sanders, whom I was a delegate for Bernie Sanders, 
But I worked hard for our nominee after that because she was a lot better than Trump. But no, he wasn't Bernie. No, you, you know, it, it just it amazes me really how, as you say, making uh, the, the good the enemy of the perfect. It just... So well, actually, I think I think the phrase goes in in reverse. But maybe. you know, Bert, I, I think um, you know we have to kind of face up to um, what I infer from the left green opposition to that Washington State carbon tax is that they either um, they don't understand basic economic principles, uh. Uh, which which is that price. Or, or which which have as the number one finding, you know, down through history, that price is a powerful determinant of behavior, of choice, of investment, and innovation. It's as if they didn't trust the price pull of the carbon tax to drive, again, innovation and change that would move the state of Washington um, off of fossil fuels. And so they insisted on the push from being able to invest those revenues in um, the uh, transition away from fossil fuels. So either that, and I think there's a lot of truth to that, or they think other things are more important than stopping climate change. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I mean, that's, uh, I, I have no argument about that when it comes to things like, uh, say, uh, immigration justice, and we're all recoiling, you know, yeah. at the announcement uh, that's coming out of, uh, out of the White House right now of the hiring of 10,000 more agents that are going to deport it sounds like millions of immigrants, um, but um, you know, coming back to Washington State, yeah. uh, it's as if they believed that, or they they decided that being able to control carbon tax revenues was more important than solving the climate crisis. Absolutely amazing, and so they, the 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 so-called progressive green. They see if I have it right. They insisted that any and all uh, 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 revenue from this carbon emission tax go directly to creating sustainable, alternative, cl clean energy. But what the uh, uh, initiative in the state of Washington would have done, again, correct me if I'm wrong, would have not gone, the money would not have gone there. It would have been more equitably distributed so it wouldn't have the, the revenue would not have built new energy uh, uh, distribution and uh, yep. generation systems but would have simply reduced uh, the use of, of carbon and, and you know reduced carbon emissions is that correct yes um, and, and part of the thinking of the people who wrote the yeah. uh, initiative that was on the ballot last fall um, was that they wanted to create a template that uh -huh. other states sure. and ultimately um, the U.S. Congress could have followed or could follow um, in order to establish a national carbon tax. And, you know, not every state and not the U.S. Congress is as liberal and progressive um, environmentally and culturally as the state of Washington. For sure. So maybe they tacked a little bit too far toward the center or even to the right in order to be able to create a model that the rest of the country could follow. But for that, they were savaged by the left greens. And I'm talking about left green heroes like Van Jones hmm. and Naomi Klein. 
um, you know, and others who, again, they didn't just uh, stand on the sidelines. They urged their supporters to vote that sucker down, uh, mm. and they did. And I hope they're happy with what they got because I think the climate is very upset with them. I imagine so. And I, I hate to call them self-promoters, but okay, they're self-promoters. I know those guys, you know. And but and and, and I suppose good for them. But but what about the common good, you know? And and the idea of of working together, and again getting something good, even if it's not perfect. How did this? Washington State initiative come about? I imagine it probably cost a lot of money, took a long time. Tell us about the genesis of that. Um, Well, you know, as you can imagine, there's a very strong environmental community in the state of Washington. And, um, you know, not just national groups like the Sierra Club, but, uh, you know, kind of local groups as they might be in any state, but they're particularly strong in Washington. And they had for a while been uh, seeking a legislative solution, Mm -hmm. you know, through the Washington State Senate and Assembly, you know, a bill that would be signed by the governor. um, And that failed in the legislature. Uh So basically in 20... 15, I guess, you know, sort of like two years ago right now, mm-hmm. um, the groups are sitting around trying to figure out how can they advance some sort of carbon pricing or carbon tax bill. Um, and while they were sitting, sitting down, uh, an upstart group uh, that called themselves Carbon Washington came along and decided um, that uh, there was no time to waste, uh, that they, they wanted to get a ballot initiative, that 2016 was a good year to do it, because there would be a huge interest in politics with the presidential sure. election, and that would guarantee good turnout, which they thought would be good for um, a ballot you know, measure in mm-hmm. November. So this new group called Carbon Washington that wasn't affiliated with any of the old guard uh-huh. um, spent uh, most of 2015 gathering signatures. They needed a quarter of a million to be able to qualify for the ballot in 2016. You could only you know, gather signatures in a single calendar year, you know, so they, they couldn't sort of take oh, time my. with it. Wow. Um, and at the very end of 2015, they turned in 350,000 signatures to um, the Washington, you know, Secretary of State, and most of those qualified. Sure. They were valid. Um, so they got the measure uh, on the ballot. But in doing all that, uh, it is true that this upstart group didn't fully consult with um, the old guard groups, and they didn't fully consult with the so-called environmental justice or climate justice groups that represent primarily minority constituencies that had traditionally not uh, been included in, you know, whether they weren't asked in or they uh, didn't insert themselves into the larger environmental movement. Right. Um, and, and that was now rapidly changing. And so these environmental justice groups felt dissed. Uh-huh. They felt excluded. Uh, they began opposing the measure. And I think what happened is that the old guard groups trying to atone for decades of being uh, insensitive or mm-hmm. oblivious to mm-hmm. so-called minority concerns, right. kind of bent over backwards this time and said, okay, you, um, you know, communities of color, environmental justice groups, you're feeling excluded from the process. We're going to side with you, and we're going to distance ourselves from this 
um, referendum. And what might have begun as mm-hmm. a decision to stand aside became a kind of cascade that uh, culminated in opposing the measure on grounds of inappropriate process as well as uh, being insufficiently left and community control of the carbon tax revenues. So it was that combination that led to the split that I uh, right. talk about in my article in The Nation magazine, um, you know, and, and that uh, manifested as Greens uh, or Left Greens opposing the carbon tax uh, measure. Wow. History is so unusual, always takes odd twists and turns, and purism and uh, just trying to please one side against the other, uh, it it can mess things up. And I hope, I mean, I've heard it said that, uh, you know, a failure is a learning opportunity. So I think this is a tremendous learning opportunity. If you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. This show is Keeping Democracy Alive. Our guest today is Charles Komenoff co-founder of the Carbon Tax Center in 2007. We're talking about uh, the Republican, yes, Republican initiative for, uh, you know, now that the Washington State thing is is done, hopefully learning from that, something that's not going to please all of the uh, progressive Greens, but an actual uh, carbon emissions tax. And I'll tell you, when I read his name on an op-ed in the New York Times pushing this, of course, I was surprised. I mean, generally, if conservative Republicans are pushing something, I'm, I'm pretty much always on the other side as a general rule. Yep, me too. Uh, but <laughs> where, where, where is James Baker coming from in this? And what is he's involved with something called the Climate Leadership Council? And, and as a, a liberal environmentalist, why should I not or should I not be skeptical given who he is? Um, well, yeah, I, I, I think we should always be skeptical of things that are coming from yeah. the right or from the GOP. Um, uh, my carbon tax center has been very skeptical, um, and we've written about it, of the idea that Rex Tillerson, who is Trump's oh, new secretary yes. of state, that oh. cost once or twice in his tenure as uh, an apologist and a conspirer um, as CEO of ExxonMobil, that he once or twice said positive things about some sort of uh, token carbon tax, that this means that Rex Tillerson or Donald Trump is going to be, um, you know, supporting a carbon tax. I mean, that's hogwash. Yes. But what what was released in Washington um, seems different for, for two reasons. One is uh, that they're talking about a pretty substantial carbon tax that would start at $40 per ton of carbon dioxide. Now, that's kind of a yeah. meaningless number unless you're oh. you know, in the thick of, of, of things with you know, carbon pricing. But that's, um, that's pretty substantial, and that it would increase year in and year out in order to make sure that there's a rising and robust price signal that's really going to drive this uh, transition away from fossil fuels toward energy efficiency and renewables. Uh, but the other thing, and I hinted at this a little earlier, um, is that the revenue, uh, you know, whenever Republicans in the past have talked about a carbon tax, and I know that that's rare, they've generally insisted that the revenues be dedicated to reducing or eliminating, guess what, the corporate income tax. So that's been the Republican approach. Um, but what James Baker et al. have put forth now is different. It's this 
dividend concept where every dollar of carbon tax revenues would get redistributed to American families, to American households in those equal slices, which, as we discussed earlier, means redistributing um, income and wealth downward. Uh, Like, wow, Republicans getting behind something that, in effect, takes from the very wealthy and gives it to the less wealthy, that doesn't happen very often. And so that's a sea change. Uh, James Baker knows exactly what he's doing. (laughs) He knows what he's standing behind, and same, of course, with George Shultz. So that's a big deal, Bert, and that's why we should all be sitting up and taking notice. So I'm trying to figure out where they're coming from. And for those who who may not know, I mean, uh, you know, James Baker and Shultz, they were— Biggies in the uh, Reagan administration, certainly not exactly liberals. Well, actually, let's 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 give them their due because George Shultz was Secretary of Labor um, and, and then I guess Secretary of the Treasury for uh, Richard Nixon. I mean, we're oh, talking wow. about a presidency from you know forty-five or more years ago, and. James Baker, whom I referred to in my article in the Nation magazine as the GOP Uber consigliere, well, it was he who um, engineered and masterminded the um, Republican uh, coup, in effect, in November and December 2000, um, that decided uh, the contested and borderline election between oh. George W. Bush and Al Gore, um, right. you know, that stopped the recounts and that culminated in the Supreme Court five to four decision that handed the presidency to Bush, even though Gore had won the popular vote. So, you know, Baker is the ultimate GOP fixer. He yeah. is big time GOP elder. There is no one who can wear that title with more uh, right Right. uh, than James Baker. So why would he uh, come across on this? (laughs) Um, Well, you know, it's pretty interesting, Bert, because at at their rollout in Washington, Baker himself said that he's not completely convinced on the science of climate change, but he thinks that a carbon tax is insurance. And the carbon tax that he proposes and stands behind uh, by his own telling would be um, not bad medicine for the economy. It would be essentially kind of neutral medicine. And if you can buy cheap insurance against something that could be as catastrophic as climate change, well, I guess a conservative lowercase c Mm -hmm. uh, decision is to go buy it. And that's basically what he was saying in Washington. Interesting. So, you know, a little bit of, uh, I mean, you know, let's face it. If if the uh, shorelines are flooded, if if Florida goes under, you know, it's kind of bad for business. It 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 cuts into profits a little bit. So I suppose you know, from from that conservative point of view, you know, we got to do something about climate change. It's not just feel good and you know, uh, hippy dippy stuff. This is this is bad for business, and it's you know these big yeah, and it's also about making sure that your portfolio of, um, you know, investments is balanced um, and hedges against risk. Um, uh-huh. So, yeah, you know, yeah. that, that's a nice little uh, feature um, of, 
this you know new James Baker proposal. In effect, he's saying not only is he saying that you don't have to be a lefty or a progressive right. or you know a green or a hippie. Uh, to want to do something about climate change, he's saying you don't even have to believe <laughs> in uh, with all your being in climate change in order to take up um, action against it. You know, with this uh, insurance policy of a carbon tax and rebating the revenues through that dividend approach. Absolutely amazing. And ha- has how did this? Who thought of this idea? the The idea of not putting it as some of the you know unrealistic uh, purist thought in in Washington State, uh, you know, towards sustainable energy, different energy sources, but using it in the way to to redistribute it and lower taxes of people. How did well, that? Yeah, or or, that or actually, uh, as as quarterly uh, electronic Dividends. checks. Uh, delivered mm. to um, everybody with a social security number. You know, a very wow. simple system that could be administered very easily and efficiently. Well, you know, the intellectual origins of this idea yeah. go back to um, the 1970s when there was uh, an MIT professor, a guy still alive. You might want to have him on your show, Bert. I think his He's name that- is David Wilson, and he uh, wrote a letter to the editor somewhere with this kind of dividend idea, and I think he was talking about doing it with oil, uh, taxing oil, because in the 70s it was, uh, you know, over-dependence on oil that was putting the U.S. Uh, economy, yeah. you know, uh, in, the, in the shop, um, you know, with the, the two oil shocks. And then um, a guy named Peter Barnes um, a pretty successful capitalist picked up on this idea and published a book called Who Owns the Sky and propounded right. the idea that we should all be receiving sort of equal shares um, of uh, tax revenues from a- any kind of scheme that was going to protect the climate. And then in, I think, '09, um, a grassroots organization came into being called the Citizens Climate Lobby which um, is not only alive and kicking, they are uh, they seem to be kind of doubling every year. And I hmm. know at some point that becomes an impossibility, but they, yep. they've uh, had, had meteoric growth. They've got uh, chapters and volunteers in every congressional district in the United States, and they are organized around what they called a carbon fee. They don't like to use the TAX, <laughs> a carbon fee and dividend. Uh-huh. Um, and so they've been propounding and disseminating this idea, uh, speaking to members of Congress, letters to the editor, so it's gotten a certain amount of intellectual currency, not that much political traction. And then mm-hmm. um, along comes this year, or I guess last year, the, this Climate Leadership Council, which um run by a guy named Ted Halstead, who uh, was name. able to, uh, I don't know how exactly, but he was able to bring James Baker uh, in on this idea. And, you know, that's a real coup. Uh, because, again, a guy of his stature, a Republican, uh, impeccable credentials uh, of what used to be oh, the yeah. Republican establishment, yeah. not a Tea Party guy, obviously. Right. Um, uh, he's now the guy, you know, running with the ball. So, you know, Baker didn't pick up the ball um, at his own one-yard line and move it, you know, all the way downfield. <laughs> Others did that, but he's now got the ball, and it's great that he's running with it. Well, that's great. It's always good to use football analogies. People get that for sure. and uh, well, Especially in New England. Oh, know. absolutely, absolutely. Well, I, has this been tried anywhere? This, this particular proposal, has a carbon tax of this kind of structure 
or for that matter, any carbon tax, has it been implemented anywhere? And how has it worked if it has? I mean, not just well, in the U.S. You know, first of all, there's no um, fee and dividend uh, carbon tax um, anywhere. So this would be, you know, a first. Um, there's another model, and I should have mentioned this earlier, that the state sure. of Alaska in the 1970s, when the Trans-Alaska Pipeline was approved and built, and they knew they were, were going to be sitting on top of an, uh, of an economic gusher, yeah. and that um, they, the, the state of Alaska, the libertarian state of Alaska, decided to tax the hell out of oil that they extracted from uh, the North Slope and that they were sending to the lower 48 um, with the Trans-Alaska Pipeline. They could tax it very heavily and still um, keep market share because OPEC had raised uh-huh. you know, the global price of oil. So what was the state of Alaska going to do with this oil windfall? Should they expand government and you know, build mass transit from uh, Anchorage to Nome? No. Hell no. For all three people, right. <laughs> um, and so they decided to create what's called the Alaska Permanent Fund, which um, uh, distributed and still does uh, the uh, oil tax revenues to every household in Alaska with each home or family getting essentially an equal share. Uh-huh. Now, this fund has dwindled somewhat because there's less oil flowing through the pipeline now and the tax uh, per barrel has declined as the world price has declined. But uh, this was something that enriched um and kept solvent, you know, the good people of Alaska yeah. for about 40 years. And, you know, it's still happening. And um, so that's really the closest thing that there is to a dividend model. But in terms of a carbon tax, um, let's go to British Columbia, okay. which is the westernmost province um, in Canada, just north of Washington, Washington State, as it happens. Yeah. And they are now in the ninth year. Um, of a carbon tax. It's not a very large one because, you know, it's hard, Bert, uh, for one state or one province in a country to have a big tax on carbon if the rest of that country doesn't. You know, you have all kinds of competition issues and border uh, issues, you know, people buying gas across the border, and then when they go to buy gas, well, they buy groceries and clothes and, you know, go to the mall across the border, etc. So there are limits to what you can do. Um, And, you know, there's even disagreement as to how well the British Columbia carbon tax has worked. And there are ideologues on the left one of them uh, had a letter published in today's New York Times that insists that the B.C. British Columbia mm-hmm. carbon tax has been a bust. But I'm here to tell you, I've studied it in great detail. I'm an economist. I know how to look at the numbers. Mm. I know how to compare apples to apples. It's been a success, not uh, you know a game-changing success because the carbon tax is pretty modest. It's only about half the level. That you're talking about. Of the James Baker proposed carbon tax. But uh, carbon emissions and fossil fuel use in British Columbia, um, you know, either they've gone down or they haven't gone up as much as in the rest of Canada. So that's the best model. It's uh-huh. a pretty good one. Yeah. Um, and that's what the Baker plan, um, in effect, is, is building on. And it sounds like, again, if I correct me if I'm wrong, that. Alaska is pumping out less oil, and the price of oil isn't what it used to be. But it would be kind of different for the the, the carbon emissions taxes that the taxes would 
go up and not necessarily be uh, related to the price of of uh, gasoline and, and uh, fuel oil uh, and stuff like that. And so it would be uh, on more solid economic ground. Is that correct? Well, yeah. Uh, I, I mean, the um, w- one of the... Um drawbacks with the British Columbia carbon tax is that it was instituted in 2008, and it went up stepwise for four years, but it has not gone up now since the mid-2012, which is almost five years. Yeah. And the, the, the carbon tax, it has to keep going up. Yes. Now, again, you know, British Columbia might be constrained if there's no carbon tax in neighboring Alberta, uh-huh. um, but the United States doesn't have that problem uh, because, you know, uh, we're a big enough uh, economic entity and we also have the right under World Trade Organization rules, if we want, we can tax imports um, to, uh, in effect, uh, impose a border-adjusted carbon tax on the carbon content of imports. So, you know, we have the authority to do that. There's nothing that would stop us from having that carbon tax rise over time because it's that rising price signal which is going to drive the changes, especially in innovation that are going to make new products um, and new ways of making things um, Uh and new norms Uh in our society that, that are going to push fossil fuels out of the economy really fast because let's not lose sight of what is at stake here. It's the Earth's climate on which pretty much everything we do, whether we want it to or not, or yeah. think about it every day or not, everything we do depends on a semblance of stability in the climate so we can grow crops um, and uh, not have constant extreme weather events, of, uh, especially flooding and drought, which can coexist under climate change. Oh, That's yeah. what this is all about. And we've seen it in California in the past few years, going from drought to way too much rain, Oh, it's and I mean, all the hurricanes and things like that. This was a, a message from a, a listener texted in. The question is, what do you say to accusations uh, that isn't the carbon tax really just a door to open a world tax regime and world government structure? I mean, it has to be like a, a solution to the health care uh, issue. Uh, you know, you need a big market to make the thing uh, uh, worthwhile and, and work out. If it's too small, it's not going to work out. So doesn't this sort of, you know, expand the possibilities? A question from a uh, listener. Well, um, you know, maybe the listener is thinking about like cap and trade and right. global you know, trading schemes for emission permits, which a carbon tax is definitely not. Um, I would actually say it's the reverse, that a, a carbon tax um, is a homegrown solution. We hope that it will be duplicated in countries all around the world. Right. Uh, but it's not as if anybody else is telling us what to do. It's, it's us getting our own house in order, uh-huh. realizing that we uh, are responsible for about 20% of global carbon dioxide emissions. We're responsible for more than that historically, because mm. it used to be that the United States alone was you know, responsible for about half of emissions. And, you know, the CO2 um, that was emitted 50 or 80 years ago by our or anybody else's smokestacks and tailpipes, a lot of that is still up in the atmosphere because oh it takes about a century 
for the average carbon dioxide molecule to be washed out of the upper atmosphere. So, uh, you know, don't worry about this boogeyman of, you know, world governments or uh, black helicopters (laughs) or, you know, whatnot. We've got to get our own house in order. And the least intrusive, um, most um, market friendly way Mm -hmm. to do that is with a carbon tax. A carbon tax um, fixes a market failure that is keeping uh, us from being able to solve climate change. Yeah, and uh, uh, if people think about the amount of of carbon that goes into the air every day, it's huge. I I, I mean, I don't have any numbers, but I've just, whenever I've heard uh, figures in the past, it's just Whoa, we don't realize how much, how heavy that stuff is, and it is having an effect. <laughs> you write in your article in The Nation, quote, Yet this progress comes with a catch. The council would phase out much of the Environmental Protection Agency's regulatory authority over greenhouse gases and would outright repeal President Obama's clean power plan to cut emissions from electric electricity generations. It would also immunize fossil fuel companies from lawsuits for damages done by their products. That doesn't sound very good, but you also argue that repealing uh, Obama's clean power plan is like swapping an aging ball player for the next superstar. Uh, please set my mind at ease on this. Yeah, well, let's start with that last point. I mean, you know, Bill Belichick, I mean, whatever you may think about climate and who knows, um, he is a pretty smart guy about not hanging on to veterans who um, have passed their peak performance, who are past their prime, and he'll uh, get rid of them in order to bring on the new blood. And it's worked well that the Obama Clean Power Plan um, has pretty much done um, what the president asked it to do when he unveiled it uh, almost three years ago. Um, it is so far ahead of schedule uh, because the electric utility sector, and that's all that the Clean Power Plan addresses, it's only about um, electric utility emissions of carbon dioxide, uh-huh. and it, it was not designed for and doesn't address in any way, and wasn't supposed to, um, emissions from oil refineries, from tailpipes from, uh, you know, factories, et cetera. It was uh, designed, again, only for electricity. It was supposed to reduce um, uh, uh, CO2 emissions from from, uh, electric generating plants by a certain amount, by 32%, um, over a a 16-year period, you know, by 2030. Well, it's about five-sixths of the way there, Bert. The emissions from electric utility plants last year, I ran the numbers, are down 27% from the baseline of uh, about a dozen years ago. So the Clean Power Plan has done, um, or or in fact, electric utility plants have done what the Clean Power Plan wanted them to do. So getting rid of it is um, basically shoving out the door something that maybe was a, you, you relied on once, but that you don't need anymore. Um, the other feature about, or the other main feature, that um, oil companies and coal companies would be indemnified against lawsuits right. for having wrecked the climate. Um, you know, I don't think that that's a big price to pay uh, either, you know, giving away the right to litigate them, because whether we like it or not, we don't live in a society that is going to uh, exact 
billions or trillions of dollars of damages, which is what we're talking about. Sure. Trillions. Yeah, really. Um, you know, on companies that produced a product, you know, gasoline or coal-fired electricity, that we, in effect, demanded every time we turned on the ignition right. and every time we flipped on a light switch uh, or opened the refrigerator. Um, that, to some extent, was us. And, yeah, you know, Exxon lied, Exxon knew about climate change. That's, for the most part, really true. But what would you rather do? Would you rather uh, try to sue, uh, you know, oil companies, uh, a very unlikely prospect, or solve the problem? And given that choice... Uh, I go for solving the problem. I think that's a pretty easy choice. Well, Trump, of course, is only too eager to serve the profits of the fossil fuel industry. No question about that. Here we are. Republicans control both houses of Congress. Are they not of the same ilk? What are the chances of of progress on on this uh, happening here? And what can people do? Um, You know, I... uh, I just think we have to be uh, cold-eyed and realistic about um, what the Republican Party is right now. And while I would be the first to applaud uh, any renegade Republican who broke ranks with their uh, orthodoxy, which says you know either that uh, climate change isn't real or uh, to deal with it is too expensive, and both of those are total hogwash, um, but I'm not uh, going to be sitting around waiting for any one of them to be a profile in courage. <laughs> um, and I think what we've got to do is keep on demanding solutions to climate change, uh, to demand that those solutions be based on carbon taxes, uh, to bring the left around to embracing carbon taxes, which, as we saw in mm-hmm. Washington State last fall, uh, is too fractured and maybe uh, just you know too ignorant or too ideologically rigid uh-huh. uh, to have gotten behind carbon taxes in the way that it needs to. You know, even Bill McKibben, yeah. the great um, oh, yeah. you know founder of 350 and the real Paul Revere of Absolutely. climate change, yeah. um, he he does not. Um, uh, talk very much about carbon taxes, and either he 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 doesn't want to um, you know uh, disunify or you know fracture the movement that he has helped to create, or maybe he just doesn't get deep down in his bones the power of a carbon tax to change the economic equation in our society and get us quickly off fossil fuels. So there's a lot of organizing and a lot of education. Um, and a lot of agitation that we need to do. Um, and unless the Republican Party begins to come around, this um, their stonewalling on carbon taxes and climate change is another reason that I think we have to demolish and dismantle and destroy the current Republican Party and replace it with something, uh, whether it's Democrats or something else, that's going to take carbon taxes and climate change seriously. Well, I think they're doing a pretty good job of self-destructing right now. If people are interested in in uh, pursuing this issue, what uh, website can you point them to? I guess relative to the Carbon Tax Center. Well, I, I'd say two. You know, one is us, and you know, if you Google carbon tax, um, we come up first. That's the Carbon Tax Center. Uh, we are at carbontax.org. Uh, you know, website has a lot of information um, and points of view and graphics. We think it's sort of a fun place to uh, look around and oh, get informed. But also, for grassroots action, 
people should hook up with and join the Citizens Climate Lobby. Uh-huh. We talked about them earlier. They're the ones that are organizing in every congressional district, you know, red or blue, both for um, their particular brand of revenue-neutral carbon tax, which is very similar to what James Baker and the other Republican elders proposed very recently in Washington. They are at citizensclimate.org or just Google Citizens Climate Lobby. They're really uh, good people, Um, and I think uh, anybody who wants to participate and uh, not just work, you know, on your own, but to uh, yeah, meet up that. with like-minded people who care and are very hard workers and idealistic, go to the Citizens Climate Lobby. Thank you so much. Well, nothing that's worth, you know, really of, of great worth comes without a lot of heavy lifting. It's got to take some work. Charles Kamenoff of uh, Carbon Tech Center, thank you so much. This has been a very informative conversation, and maybe maybe we got some hope of actually uh, accomplishing something. Thank you so much. Okay, Bert. Uh, I hope it was fun, too. It was for me. Thank you very, very much. Thank you. Thank you.